0: The words that we have just sung, our Father, are eternally true. You are faithful forever. Even in the valley, you are faithful. Even in an economic valley, you are faithful. In a health valley, you are faithful. In a relational valley, you are faithful. Nothing can disturb, nothing can undermine your faithfulness. You are faithful forever. Might that truth continue to bolster us? For we are weak, we are needy, We come this morning not independent, but dependent on You. It is a fitting dependence, an appropriate dependence. And as we have already sung, as we have already read, as we have already prayed, might You continue to build in us a confidence in Your faithfulness. And might You do that by reminding us of your faithfulness to your people, Israel. And might that not only bolster our confidence that you will keep your covenant with them, but might it bolster our confidence that you will keep your promises to us also. And so that as we head into this week and whatever trials face us this week, that we will be confident in you. Give me wisdom as I open this word, give me accuracy and clarity, give me an ability to communicate it well for your glory so that we all might have our hearts pointed to you. And then Father, would you use this word to transform us for as we often say, we are desperately in need of transformation. None of us is perfect. None of us has attained. None of us has finished sanctification. So would you be pleased to sanctify us this morning by this word? We pray in Christ's name and for His glory again. Amen. The past four months and COVID-19 and unrighteous riots and unrighteous killings have raised many questions in our culture. There's raised many questions and few answers about God, not just our political leaders. Some of the questions that are being asked about God might be summarized by the questions that were asked by a writer about 30 years ago in a series of books that he wrote. And he summarized the questions that people have about God with three short questions. Is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God hidden? And all three of those questions might go to one singular question. Is God unfaithful? Is God unfaithful to His promises and is God unfaithful to Himself? Will He do what He says? That is the central question that the Apostle is asking and then answering in Romans chapter 11. The background to this chapter that feeds that question is that Israel has failed. The corporate decision about by Israel about Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ was a tool of Satan. Listen to what the religious leaders said in Matthew chapter 12. The crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching and healing. And they were saying, This cannot be the Son of David, can He? Verse 24, Matthew 12, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This man is not only not the Messiah, he is satanic, and he is ruled by the kingdom of Satan. He comes, as it were, from the pit of hell, dispensing hellish ideas and hellish works among us. It could not have been a greater rejection of the Messiah, Jesus. And that decision persisted after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. At least five times in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, as it's recorded in the book of Acts, Paul would go to a new city, go into the synagogue to teach to the Jews the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and he would be rejected and then say, Because you have rejected me, I'm going to the Gentiles five times. Their unbelief persisted. And their persistence in the unbelief in Jesus Christ is clear also in this letter. Twice in Romans 9 and then in Romans 10, the Apostle has spoken of his longing, his desire for his fellow Israelites to come to know Jesus Christ as the Messiah. If you know your Old Testament, you know that God chose the nation of Israel to be His covenant eternal people. But the question is, if Israel has rejected God, has God then failed? Have His promises failed? Is God, dare we say it, incompetent to accomplish His plans? That's the issue that the Apostle is addressing in Romans chapter 11, and he unequivocally states, God has not failed. God is faithful. The rejection of Israel has not undermined God's plan, and God will still redeem the nation of Israel. The passage before us this morning is Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 16, and in this passage we will find that failure by Israel does not preclude faithfulness by God. Though Israel has failed, though Israel has persisted in nearly 2,000 more years of faithlessness to God since these words were written by the Apostle Paul, that still does not preclude God's faithfulness to her. Even when Israel rejects God, God will still keep His promise to Israel. The failure of Israel does not preclude faithfulness by God to His promises. And we will see in this text three affirmations of God's faithfulness to Israel and God's faithfulness to Himself. He is a faithful God. As we come to this text, let me just remind you of the context in which this is writing. It's been almost four months Since we have been here, so perhaps you have forgotten a little bit of what's going on in Romans chapter 11. In verse 1, Paul asks the question, if God has rejected Israel, has God set aside Israel for a different plan? Having made the plan, has He now moved on to a different plan? And he could not answer more emphatically, may it never be. Absolutely not. That thought is abhorrent. Might that thought cease to exist? Might that never come to fruition? Absolutely not. Then verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, could actually serve as something of a theme for this entire chapter when he says, and again, unequivocally, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. So, He chose the nation of Israel in eternity past to be His covenanted people, and that has not changed. That, that choice, that decision, that election still stands. That has not changed. God is still committed to that. His meaning is absolutely unmistakable, and that meaning... That God still has faithfulness to Israel persists through this chapter. So verse 5, there is still a remnant. There has come to be, verse 5, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So so we know God is faithful because there is a remnant of people who believe. We'll see uh, this morning in verse 11. That they did not stumble so as to fall out of God's blessing. We'll see in verse 12 that there will still be a fulfillment of God's promises to them. We we will see in a couple weeks in verse 25 that the hardening of the Israelites was for the purpose of grafting in the Gentiles. Verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, so individuals have been hardened, but that does not preclude the promise of God to the entire nation. They will yet come. And the Deliverer, verses 26 and 27, will show them mercy yet So all Israel will be saved, verse 26... Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 30, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may now be shown mercy. They... They will be shown mercy. God has not removed them from His covenantal promises. So, just a quick overview of the chapter. God is faithful to keep the promises to the nation of Israel. It is helpful to remember as we come to this chapter also that as Paul speaks about the nation of Israel, he's speaking about three different groups of Israelites. He is speaking about the nation as a nation, a nation that will receive the covenanted promises that he gave to them. That's verse verses 1 and 2. He has not rejected his people whom he has foreknown. Has he? He will still keep the promises to the nation. The nation will yet come to redemption and salvation as a nation. Then he's also speaking not just of Israelites as an entire entity, As a, as a corporate entity, but he also speaks of them as individuals, and he speaks of the individual Israelites in two ways. He speaks of individuals who have rejected Christ and been hardened. This is what we saw in verses seven through ten. Those who have not, those who were not chosen, excuse me, those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And then quoting from Isaiah, uh, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, not ears to hear, not down to this very day, and so he He talks about individual Israelites who are hardened, and then along with those who are hardened, He speaks of individuals who are saved by God, a remnant of individual Israelites who have been saved along the way and and He himself is one of those, in fact, verse one. God hasn't rejected his people because I too am an Israelite. I have received the covenantal blessings of God as an Israelite. The fact that I alone am saved is demonstration that God hasn't given up on Israel. But not just them, but verse 5, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So there's a, a whole remnant of people and there has always been a remnant of God's people within Israel who have been saved. So we've got all three of those groups, individual Israelites who are saved, individual Israelites who are not saved, and then the corporate nation of Israel who has not yet received the covenanted promises of of God, but they will at one time as an entire nation receive those promises. Again, As Paul makes his way through these verses 11 to 16, we're going to find three affirmations of God's faithfulness. He is a faithful God to keep His promises. The first affirmation is given to us at the beginning of verse 11. Israel's rejection of God does not invalidate God's promises. Israel's rejection of God does not invalidate God's promise. In verses 7 to 10, again, Israel is divided into two factions, right? You have individuals, some who are chosen by God and as a remnant, and then others who are hardened by God. And, and the question is, is that division permanent? Is Israel's rejection enough to put them outside of the promise? And the apostle, at the beginning of verse 11, acknowledges that Israel has sinned. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? When he says that they've stumbled, it's an affirmation. They have rejected Christ. They have been disobedient to the, to the covenant of God. They, they have rebelled against God. That is a reality. They have strayed into sin. They are culpable. The question is, is that culpability, is that guilt enough to keep them permanently out of the promise of God? Have they fallen permanently outside of God's promise? Have they committed an irredeemable sin that led to an irrevocable fall? What does Paul say? May it never be This is one of Paul's favorite phrases in the book of Romans. Ten times he uses that phrase. In fact, he used it already in this context in verse 1. God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. It it means something like, may it never come to fruition. May it never come to life. Might, Might that idea never become even a reality. May it never have any life, any substance. Might it never come about how can paul be so sure well he can be sure and he's good because of what he's going to unfold for us in verses 11 to 16 but again it's a reminder to us that even just looking back at verses 7 to 10 that as paul thinks about individual israelites and the fact that there are individual israelites who are a remnant who have been saved it's indicative that god has not walked away from his people Though there are individuals that have been hardened, that does not invalidate the plan that God has for the nation. In verse 11, he's not talking about individuals. He was talking about individual people in Israel in verses 7 to 10. But now in verse 11, he's shifting back. And he's thinking about the nation as an entity. And we know he's thinking about the nation as an entity because he is contrasting Israel, not individual Israelites, but he's contrasting the nation to the mass of humanity called Gentiles, right? So there's a contrast in verse 11 between they who stumbled and Gentiles. And we see again that contrast in verse 12. there. The nation's transgression is contrasted with the blessing that comes to the Gentiles and then what there the nation's fulfillment will be. So in verse 11, he's shifted back from talking about individuals who are within the nation of Israel to talking again about the covenant that he has made with the entire nation and when and how that might come to fruition, and whether or not God is faithful. And so again, he's reminding us, God God is faithful to individuals. If God is faithful to individuals, He will be faithful to the nation. This emphatic denial, may it never be, is a reminder of God's faithfulness to Himself and the truth. We are often tempted in trials to forget or question or deny God's faithfulness. Oh friend, do not give up in the dark what God has revealed in the light. When you are in trial, when you are in darkness, when you are in difficulty, do not give up the truth of what God has revealed about himself when you are in the light. Don't give up in the dark what God has shown in the light. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because He is faithful and with us. He is faithful. Always interpret your circumstance in light of that truth. So there is one affirmation of God's faithfulness to Israel. Their rejection does not, cannot, will not invalidate God's promise. A second affirmation is given to us in the middle of verse 11, and then at the beginning of verse 12, God's rejection, excuse me, Israel's rejection of God leads to God's salvation of the Gentiles. How do you see God's faithfulness? But you see God's faithfulness in His salvation of the Gentiles. He says, They did not stumble out of God's covenanted promises. May it never be then a major contrast. But there's something else that's going on through their rebellion, through their rejection. But, verse 11, by their transgression, that is by means of, that is it took their transgression to accomplish this. Through their transgression, by means of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why is that remarkable? Because the Gentiles were not promised salvation. The covenant was not made with the Gentiles. The covenant was made with one tiny little country in the Middle East. Not a great country, the least of the countries. Not a prominent country, the most improminent country. Not a powerful country, the weakest country. God made a covenant with them and with no one else. Now, part of that covenant is that he says in Genesis chapter 12, that that they will bless the world. As they receive that covenant, the whole world will receive blessing from them and through them. In fact, we have seen intimation of that already in Romans, haven't we? 9.25, as he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. So those who were outside by the sin of Israel have been allowed in to the covenant blessings that God has given. They... They don't supplant Israel, but they receive from those covenant blessings what has been promised to Israel. So from one nation's sin, many nations and many people are blessed. And and you know this, right? So Revelation chapter 5, we've alluded to this often, and they sang a new song, The host of heaven saying, worthy are you, Jesus Christ, to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. It is not just that Jesus Christ died for the nation Israel, but He died for all the peoples and all the nations. And it took the sin of Israel and Israel's rejection of God to bring the nations into that promise, such that when we get to heaven, John writes, Revelation 22, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life. Remember that tree of life from Genesis 1 and 2? There's that tree again, and it is bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Plural. If only Israel has received from the covenant promises, then it would say, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation Israel. But friend, that's not what it says. It says it is for the nations. So the nations, because Israel has sinned, now the nations have the gospel preached to them. And men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are grafted into and received from those promises. God did that through Israel's sin. And that implies at least two things for us. One, sin cannot undo or prevent the accomplishment of God's plans and purposes. Is that a comfort in your life? You better believe it. My sin, which is vast... My sin, which I cannot begin to count how great it is, how extensive it is, how deep it is, cannot prevent the accomplishment of God's purposes and God's plans. That is true of me. That is true of you. That is true of the nation of Israel. God will fulfill his plans in spite of sin. And the second thing that it implies is that God redeems and uses the worst things to accomplish His purposes. Now, the apostle doesn't use the word redeem here or redemption, but that's what's going on, isn't it? God is redeeming. God is buying the sin of Israel, and He's he's using it to accomplish His purposes. He's accomplishing good things from evil things the things that that Satan had designed for the destruction of Israel, God says, not only will I save Israel through them, but I will also save a host of nations through this. Oh, friends, that should make us hopeful for our situation as Gentiles, and that should make us hopeful for our situation as sinners. Our sin, Israel's sin, cannot undo God's purposes. There's a third affirmation of God's faithfulness in this text. It's given to us at the end of verse 11 and then in verses 12 to 16. God's salvation of Gentiles leads to God's salvation of Israel. God's salvation of Gentiles leads to God's salvation of Israel. So Israel rejects God and God turns to the Gentiles and saves Gentiles, and by saving Gentiles, he uses that as the means of bringing the Israelites into the promises that he has for them. So he comes full circle. Israel's rejected. God brings in Gentiles, and by that, he also brings in Israel. And here we find in verse 11, God's purpose for being gracious to Gentiles. Why is God gracious to to the Gentiles. Why did and why did God use Israel's sin to give salvation to the Gentiles? Notice the end of verse eleven. Salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make them not Gentiles, but Israel jealous. So salvation is given to the Gentiles in order to provoke Israel to jealousy. And the the principle we find here is the principle we've already seen in chapter 10 that Paul speaks of, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, Moses at the end of his ministry, as he is about to go into glory and the nation about to go into the land, he recites the nation of Israel's history and their rejection of God Verse 19, the Lord saw their rebellion and he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be for they are, are a perverse nation, sons in whom they have no, in sons in whom is no faithfulness. Verse 21, this is key. They have, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So God is righteously jealous for his people. How can he be righteously jealous? Because they're his people. He's chosen them. He is betrothed to them. He is married to them. And they have, they have gone away from Him. They've committed adultery with other gods. And the, the jealousy that God has for His nation is a righteous kind of jealousy. And He wants to provoke in Israel a righteous kind of jealousy for Him. It is appropriate that they be married to God, united to God, in fellowship with God. So, so God wants to lead them to a jealousy that says, wait a minute, that's my God. I want Him. And God will do that through the salvation of the Gentiles. I will make them jealous. Let's think about that jealousy in two ways. It is a tremendous sorrow that Israel has rejected Christ. But friends, it's also a great sorrow That too many Gentiles have not taken carefully their calling to provoke Israel to salvation. We have failed to live. And we have failed to live and evangelize in a way that makes them jealous. That makes them say, That's that's the Messiah. That's my Messiah. I want that Messiah. We, we have not been pursuing Him. Oh, Gentile, who has embraced our Messiah, why are you being so gracious? Why are you being so kind? Why are you, you being so generous? Why are you being so understanding? That is our Messiah. We want Him too. Oh, well, friends, are we living in such a way as to provoke unbelieving Israel to faith in the Messiah? That's one sorrow. Perhaps a greater sorrow is that at times, far too often, the church has been the instrument to drive Israel away from the Messiah. For we have been engaged in racism and anti-Semitism as if to say the Jewish Messiah came only for Gentiles and not the Jews. Oh, friends, we're we're only in because the Israelites rejected Him. How dare we be prejudicial against them? And for too much of the church's history, it is the church itself that was to be an instrument of salvation for the Jews that has driven them away because of ethnic hatred and unrighteous prejudice. Prejudice. We were redeemed from that hatred. We were redeemed from anti Semitism. And far too many of us have stayed there. Our salvation is not just about us. Our salvation is given to attract sinners and especially Israel to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Says one of my favorite commentators on this verse Christians should not take this passage calmly. This is critical to us. This is our testimony. God's purpose is to redeem His people and He wants us to be the ones who accomplish that. God's purpose for being gracious to Gentiles is to lead Israel to salvation. Let us also note in verse 12, Here we go again, Drew. Okay, here we go. God's rich faithfulness to Israel. God's rich faithfulness to Israel. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches from the world. When he says now if, he doesn't mean, well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. He he means now since. Since. It is a reality. What, what he's about to say has come about. It is a certainty. And he uses two phrases to to indicate the same reality. If their transgression is riches for the world, is the same as saying if their failure is riches for the Gentiles. Their transgression, their sin, their walking away from the Messiah is the same thing as saying they have failed their utter loss and both their transgression, their missteps, their, their intentionally walking away from Christ, their utter loss and failure has produced riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles, riches for those who are non-Israelites. And the words world and Gentiles might refer to the population of the world and the totality of the world as well as the religion of the world. But, but even if there's not that distinction, he's saying their, their sin has led to grace and salvation being given to those who are non-Jews. And if that is true, there is something also that is true how much more will their fulfillment be? Not only will Israel receive similar riches in salvation, but they will receive much more. It's it's Paul's way of saying, if non-covenanters, if those who are outside the covenant have been grafted in, to use the picture that he'll talk about next week, if they've been grafted in and they receive this wealth, can you imagine the wealth that's going to come to those who are inside the covenant? The blessing that will be granted to them? How much more will they receive? Here, if a faithful Israel can bring about salvation for the Gentiles, how much more? will a faithful Israel accomplish. What will happen when Israel is redeemed? Well, Israel will reign with God. Satan will be bound. The heavens and earth will be renewed. Only justice will be done on the earth and peace will reign. Revelation 22. There will be... No longer any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, sent His angel to show His bond servants the things which must soon take place. Oh, friends, when the redemption of Israel comes, everything God has promised will come. We've tasted a little bit. We've gotten a foretaste. We've gotten the appetizer, if you will. But the full meal comes when Israel is redeemed. The temporary unbelief of the nation is not the final word in the book. And there are unimaginable riches of salvation that are coming yet for Israel. There is also God's remnant faithfulness to Israel Paul is looking forward, right? Verses 11 and 12 to that future day of redemption. But what about now? What what about present ministry? Even though though the final day of redemption for Israel was still future for the Apostle Paul and is still future 2,000 years later today, Someone might ask, well, if that's true, if it's still all out in the future, then Paul, why why are you working so hard for the salvation of Israel? Why do you keep going to synagogues? Why do you keep attempting to save Jews? Why, Why do you long so much for this salvation? Verse 13. Why do you keep serving? Why do you keep ministering? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And Paul's not saying, um, I am an apostle to the Gentiles and I want everybody to know that I am the apostle to the Gentiles. That's not what he's saying. I magnify my ministry. Now think about who the apostle Paul was. Remember Philippians chapter 2? Hebrew of Hebrews, Israelite of Israelites, particularly well-placed in the nation of Israel, particularly well-trained, particularly well-taught, particularly zealous for Israel. And that's the one that goes to the Gentiles. Why does he magnify his ministry to the Gentiles? Why does he work so hard for the Gentiles? Because ultimately, he's not just working for the Gentiles, is he? Notice what he says next. If somehow, verse 14, I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. I I do this. I... I point to my ministry to the Gentiles as as the Jew of Jews so that the Jews looking at my ministry say we want in so that some of them might be saved so in his working for the Gentiles he's not just working for the Gentiles is he? He's working for the Jews and for the remnant who will believe. Notice what he says at the end of verse 14. He does not see his ministry as that which will bring in the kingdom of God and save the nation. No, he says, "I say, so that I will save some of them, so that so that a remnant of individuals will be saved." Again, as indicative of the full nation that is coming yet in the future. Oh, I'm working hard for Gentiles so that some individual Jews will also be saved so that God will ultimately fulfill His covenanted promise to Israel. This is Paul's way of saying God hasn't given up on Israel and I haven't either. As I pursue Israelites in evangelism, Gentiles will be saved when Israel rejects, but some Jews also will be saved. And that's my longing. That's my desire. Oh, friends, similarly, we, we want the world to believe, but we should rejoice over the one that, save, that is saved and through the one Jew that is saved. God has a remnant of faithfulness, a remnant faithfulness to Israel. God also has, verse 15, a resurrection faithfulness to Israel. Notice the connection between verses 14 and 15. Why should Paul work for the jealousy of some, for the salvation of some? Because for, verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? This is this is the same kind of thing that the apostle talked about in verse 12. If, if, if their rejection of the Messiah has proven to bring about reconciliation between Gentiles and God, and between Gentile and Gentile, and between Gentile and Jew, if that kind of reconciliation can be brought about through their rejection of Christ then what will their acceptance be? What will, what will it be like when God opens His arms in welcome to them and embraces them? What will it be? But the full nature of their acceptance is this, life from the dead. Not only, not only will Israel have acceptance, but she will have life She will have resurrection life. When Paul says that, it is to denote the utter lostness of Israel right now. That she is dead. Even as we were dead in our transgressions and sins, they have no hope for life without the Messiah. Ah, but when they're accepted, they will have all resurrection life and all the blessings that come to them in being alive in God. This is not to say that Gentiles, when they come to faith, are not alive. Oh, friends, we are, right? That's what, that's what Romans 5-8 to has been talking about. We're, we're alive in Christ and all of the blessings that come. But it is to say that when when redeemed Israel is granted life, they, they will be really alive. Does that sound familiar? I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they, the dead bones, came to life. And stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. That smallest of the nations, the weakest of the nations, becomes a great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. House of Israel right now says our hope has perished Prophesy to them and say, Thus says the Lord, I will open your graves. I will cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. The Apostle Paul says it this way, What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When when they are granted this life in the future... (laughs) Oh, it will be life indeed, just like dead bones being given flesh and breath. In God's faithfulness, Israel can be sure that she will receive riches and a remnant and a resurrection. Then in verse 16, the apostle illustrates that reality if the first piece of dough is holy, that is, if the first fruit of dough, that's what the word actually is, it, not just first piece, but first fruit. So if you have, if you are making something, a piece of, if you're making bread and you just grab a piece of that dough and that dough is holy, then you know that the whole mass of dough that you have is holy. Whatever's in the piece is in the whole. It's not just true of dough, but it's also true about trees. If a root is holy, then the branches are too. And here we're going to find next week that the apostle is speaking about not just the nation of Israel, but as he talks about root, he's not talking about Christ, but he's talking about those who were the first recipients of the promise. He's talking about the patriarchs of Israel, and I think he's specifically talking about Abraham. And if Abraham is justified by faith, and if the promise is kept to Abraham, then the nation also will receive of the promises. God is faithful to Abraham. He will be faithful to the people that come from Abraham. This is very similar to, to what the prophet Isaiah says in isaiah chapter fifty one isaiah fifty one listen to me, verse one, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you who gave birth to you in pain, but he was but one I, when he was but one. I called him when he was but one person. I called him. Then I blessed him and I multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert, like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sound of a melody. If God saves the one Abraham He will save all who come from him. We can be sure that God will be faithful. Israel can be confident that God will be faithful. We can be confident that he will be faithful. He is a faithful God. Very quickly, four lessons. God is faithful. Whatever hardness Israel experienced not only produced salvation for the Gentiles, but will ultimately also lead to fulfillment for Israel. God will keep His promise to Israel. The nation of Israel, to date, has rejected the message of Christ, but God is in control. And He is even using their rejection of Christ to accomplish further plans of redemption among Gentiles that will ultimately be used to bring them back. Oh friend, God is faithful. His plans cannot be thwarted. And that gives us peace in living the Christian life on a daily basis because even when we sin, God's plans are not compromised. He is sovereign. He is faithful. Be thankful for your salvation. Do not be self-righteously proud. Paul, and we're going to find this particularly next week, Paul wrote this section to keep the Gentiles from pride. Oh, friends, we've been given a, a gift of grace, and that gift, that grace, should always lead us to gratitude and never pride. Grace always means I don't deserve this, and if I don't deserve this, I have no basis for pride. Oh, friend, be, be profoundly thankful But never let the gratitude move towards self-righteous pride. Thirdly, live in such a way that your salvation makes Israel and others jealous for salvation. One reason people do not come to Christ at times is because of the way some of Christ's people live. Our testimonies our lives ought to bear fruit in such a way that people look at us and say, I want to be like that person. I want to live like that. I want to have what they have. Our lives should be a, a constant source of provocation to those who do not yet believe. Fourth lesson do not give up praying and evangelizing. The story of Israel's is not yet finished. The story of Israel wasn't finished when Paul wrote this. It's still not finished today. But God will be faithful to fulfill His promises to Israel. His story with Israel isn't finished. Friend, His story with you and me isn't finished. The fact that, that we can trust God... To accomplish redemption with a faithless Israel should make us to be confident that those whom we love who have not yet trusted Christ, that story also isn't finished yet. Oh friend, do not despair when those whom you love have not yet trusted Christ, but keep praying, keep evangelizing, keep working, Keep laboring. God is faithful. Who knows what He might do? Our Father, we thank You that while we fail in life, while Israel has failed for generations, that does not preclude You from being faithful to her or to us. Might we, Father, rest in that faithfulness? Might we be confident in that faithfulness? Might that faithfulness help us to rest in you this week? Might that faithfulness lead us to living transformed lives that are an attraction for Israel and for other unredeemed Gentiles? Father, might we be confident in You, the One who is always faithful to His promises. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.